Thank you very much. I begin on perhaps an unusual note. I begin by thanking you for coming. It's not something which I take for granted. The night after Slichas, I think we're all hopefully exhilarated from the opening Slichas, but probably also with a little bit of a hangover of fatigue, facing the prospect of an early morning, tomorrow morning, so I don't take anyone's presence for granted tonight and, and appreciate very much your coming. I thank you and I appreciate it, especially because I think we need each other, all of us, everyone in the room. I think we, we need each other to prepare ourselves for the Yom Narayim to be able to do tshuva. And this is so for two reasons. First of all, because we need to do tshuva collectively. In yesterday's Kriya Satora, we had the Pasuk in, in the Parshios Mechubaros, when Nitzavim and Vayelech are together as they were yesterday. So the Pasuk is right before Sheni, HaNistaros LaShem Elokeinu, VaHaNiglos Lanu Luvaneinu Adolam Lasos Eskodivei HaTorah Hazos. This Pasuk is subject to a dispute of Machlokis Tanoim, in Masecha Sanhedrin. This Pasuk establishes the principle of Orvos, of mutual responsibility and interdependence amongst Jews. And there is a very fundamental dispute whether or not this principle applies exclusively to actions which are done in public. Everyone agrees that there is oivus, that we are responsible for each other if one Jew sins publicly and all other Jews are silent. No one seeks to, to influence the person. If appropriate, no one pro- protests when the protest is appropriate. So then we're all liable. The principle of oivus. The Gemara derives this as well from the Pesach of V'choshlu Ish Ba'ochiv the Gemara in Shvuah's Darshins V'choshlu Ish Ba'avon Ochiv a person stumbles over the sin of his fellow Jew according to some opinions this principle of Orvus however applies not only when a Jew sins publicly but even if a Jew sins in private even if a Jew goes into a an, an inner room of his home and locks the doors, pulls down the window shades, and whatever the Avera may be, which he transgresses, so then all of us collectively are responsible for that and are held liable for that. The obvious difficulty with that, and it's a difficulty with which the Maharsha already grapples in Masechah Sanhedrin, is isn't that an unfair expectation? If the Torah expects us to respond to what I see in public, okay, so that I understand. I'm aware of it. The Torah expects me to respond. But if someone is filling out his, uh, his, his tax return in private, and I have no way of knowing uh, whether he's fudging the figures, so how can, how can any of us be held liable for the fact that this person is not being honest in, in filling out his taxes? How can that be? And yet, it's a dispute between Rabbi Yehud and Nehemiah, but yet some maintain that the Torah does hold us to this standard. How can that be? So Rosh Feinstein's Feinstein, offers a very beautiful explanation. And he says that when a person, even when a person again, is in private. And he's not consulting anyone. He's not even allowing anyone in on his own personal deliberations. Nevertheless, we're influenced by what we sense to be the mores of the society around us. If I'm doing my taxes, and I'm tempted, again, not to report some income, I'm tempted to try to pay a little less than I'm supposed to. So consciously or subconsciously, I am affected, I'm influenced 
by what I anticipate would be the reaction of my community if I were to be exposed. So the community influences me. It impacts me even without being drawn in, even without directly being invited into my deliberation because if I am aware that the community would condemn this in the harshest terms, that, that, it, that it would be considered just totally, totally out of bounds, then that would influence me in my private struggle, even if no one is given the opportunity to whisper in my ear and to tell me not to do it. So when we do tshuva, so we do tshuva collectively as well, in terms of what kind of influences have we as a society created for each other. So that's one reason why we can't just stay at home, each of us in, in the privacy of our own living rooms, but we need each other to think about tshuva, to think about what we can correct and how we can correct in these days leading up to the Yom and the Royim. But even when we speak of doing tshuva on a personal level, and of course we do tshuva not only collectively, communally, but we do tshuva individually as well, because we're judged also as individuals. When the Mishnah says that on Rosh Hashanah, that everyone is, passes before HaKadosh Baruch Hu, kivnei maron, that we pass before HaKadosh Baruch Hu like, like sheep, so the Mepharshim explained that when the shepherd wants to count the sheep, so he has them pass by one by one. And in that way, he can get an accurate count of the sheep. So too, when it says that in Rosh Hashanah, we pass before HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Kaviyachu, Kivnei Maron, so it means that we're also judged individually. So certainly, again, we have to do tshuva not only collectively, not only as a community, but also as individuals. Each one of us is an individual, but even on that level, even on that plane, we help each other, we need each other. When, when we come together to think about Inyane Tshuva, so the, what Chazal tell us on the Pasuk in Parshish B'chukosai, the Chazal comment on the Pasuk, V'radfu mikem chamisha meya, u'meya mikem rivava yudofu, that when the Jewish people are, are faithful to the word of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, so five Jews will will chase, will send into a panic a hundred of their enemies, and the hundred Jews will have the same effect on a horde of ten thousand enemies. So Chazal noticed that the ratio was not the same, right? That the ratio was increasing. Five to a hundred, so it should have been a hundred to two thousand, right? If it's going to be a ratio of one to twenty. And yet the Torah opposite to a hundred will, will, will chase away, will, will send into, into a panic 10,000. How is that? So Chazal comment that If you only have a group of five who have devoted themselves to carrying out the will of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, so they don't have the same sheer power as when you have merubim, as when you have a larger group who are osim mitzvah noshem So for both those reasons, again, I, I repeat my, my opening comment. I, I thank you, each and every one of you, for coming and allowing us tonight to reflect on tshuva collectively and even as we reflect individually to be part of a group of hopefully Be'ezus Hashem of Merubim Ha'osim Ritzana Shamakom of a larger group devoting themselves their time and their energy to doing the will of HaKadosh Baruch Hu Rabbeinu Yonah writes in, in two places in the Shari Tshuva that there is a special obligation to do Tshuva on Yom HaKippurim that above and beyond the mitzvah of tshuva, which is operative year-long, according to the Ramban, the source for the mitzvah again was in yesterday's Kriya Satara, when the Torah said, V'shavta ad Hashem So according to the Ramban, that's an imperative. It's not only a haftach, it's not only a promise and a prophecy, but it's also a mandate for tshuva of V'shavta ad Hashem 
According to the Rambam, the, the, the source for the mitzvah is earlier in the Torah in Parshas Naso. Be that as it may, there certainly is a mitzvah to do tshuva all year long. Nonetheless, Rabbi Yonah says there's a special and added mitzvah to do tshuva on Yom Kippur. Rabbi Yonah says that the Pasuk in Achrei Maus Right, which we say in the davening on Yom Hakipurim, on this day, through this day, through the kedusha of this day, Hakadosh Baruch Hu will grant you atonement. And then we conclude the pasuk with the words Lefnei Hashem Titaru. So Rabbi Yonah says Lefnei Hashem Titaru before Hakadosh Baruch Hu, you will purify yourselves again. Is not simply a promise. But it's rather a mandate. It's an imperative. L'fnei Hashem, on this day, by Yom Hazer, before Hashem, the Torah is speaking to each and every one of us, says Titaru, that we have to purify ourselves. Now the question is, so what is added with this special mitzvah? If there's a mitzvah to do tshuva all year long, so what's new? What added dimension is contained in the special imperative on Yom HaKippurim? So there's several answers to this question but the one which which is, is, is pertinent to us this evening I think if I'm not mistaken is, is offered is one of the answers I think it's offered by Rafutner in his Pachad Yitzchak and Rafutner says I believe I think it's Rafutner who suggests this that whereas all year long the mitzvah of tshuva is if I am aware of having sinned I am aware of, of hate, so then I'm obligated to respond. I'm obligated to do tshuva. I can't simply be complacent in the face of awareness of hate, of sin. But on Yom HaKippurim, the mitzvah is to take an inventory, to engage in introspection and to look for the Aveira. Not to wait until the Aveira presents itself to me, not to wait until I am overtaken by awareness of hate, of sin, but on Yom HaKippurim, the mitzvah is to search and see, and see whether or not I've committed any infractions of word, by word, or, or by deed, but to take the initiative of, of inventory and, and introspection. And in this context, Rabbi Yonah says it twice, the second time, he refers to the special mitzvah, Hachiyuv Nosef, Afal Pisha Nischayavnu Alzer Bechol Eis, even though we're, we're obligated to do tshuva anytime, Hachiyuv Nosef Beyom HaKippurim, the Chiyuv, the obligation, there's an additional obligation on Yom HaKippurim. And what is that? So in the previous line, Rabbeinu Yonah refers to the Apostolic in Megillus Eicha, Right, one of the, the, the final psukim in Megillus Eicha, Yemiyoh Hanavi writes, So that's the mitzvah. The mitzvah all year long is if I'm aware of chait, I have to respond by doing tshuva. On Yom HaKippurim, I have to search for chait. I have to take an inventory, I have to introspect to try to find the chait. And the model for that is the Pasuk of How do we translate it? The, 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 the Navi uses two verbs, both as well as So how, how, how is it to be translated? So should be translated as to scrutinize and to investigate. What's the difference? To scrutinize means to look at details. When the Gemara talks about Bidikas Chameitz, the Gemara describes Bidikas Chameitz as a process of chipus. But Bidikas Chameitz, we're not just looking for large chocolate cakes. We're looking for small, little small pieces of bread of Chameitz as well. Nachbasa means to scrutinize. It means to scrutinize everything I've done, everything I've said, and, and to see, to see, does it measure up to the Torah standards or not. That's Nachpasa. So what's left for Nachkorah? What does Nachkorah imply? Nachkorah implies, we know that Chazal Talash, commenting on the Psukim in Sefer Dvarim, that there's a mitzvah to subject witnesses to Chakiros. The same verb, Nachkorah. <coughs> Rashtavachakarta. 
What did the Chakiros involve? Chakiros, in, in case of testimony, means that the witnesses are cross-examined and they have to be able, with, with precision, to tell us the Zman and the Mokom, time and place of whatever it is they're claiming to have witnessed, they have to be able to tell us time and place. What's time and place? Time and place tells us context. Right? The time and place in where a person lives, it's the context of one's life. Nachbas Adachenu means scrutinize. Scrutinize. L- let me play back today. Let me play back my week. Let me play back my, my year. Let, me, let, let that real run on, on a mental screen, let me scrutinize every action, but then Nachkora, let me look at the principles, let me look at the context, let me try to see what values, what orientation was driving my life during this past year. And let me look not only at all the trees, but let me look at the forest as a whole to try to understand, again, what values, what values have been my orienting principles this year. That's what Nachkorah is. Elul is a time to take advantage of Yom HaKippurim. You know, I remember as a, as a, as a child, so the, the, in, in Boston, the, the Rav used to give a drosha every, every Motsai Shabbos. And this time of year, he would be talking about the Yom Naraim, and, and, and he'd be talking about Shuva. And when he used to talk about Yom HaKippurim, so he used to involuntarily, unconsciously, just, just begin to wax lyrical and talk about what a wonderful and beautiful day it was. And I didn't know what he was talking about. Yom Kippur for me was, you know, you look at your watch every 15 minutes and you try to do the math as to how many hours until you can break your fast, and then you, you sort of think if only the chazan would hurry up, maybe time would, would pass faster, and I, I didn't know what he was talking about. Yom HaKippurim is the most wonderful and unique opportunity that we have. It's, it's the one day in the year, again, not only is it Dirshu Hashem Bihimotso, that Hashem makes Himself so accessible to us, that's true all ten days of Aserus Yimei Tshuva, but, but also Hashem says, on this day, on this day, so we can atone, we can atone for a year of misdeeds, for a year of lack of focus, we can transform everything on this day, Kivayom such a beautiful and wonderful day, but to take advantage of it, we have to prepare for Yom HaKippurim. And that's what Chodesh Elul, that's what the 40-day preparation, beginning with Chodesh Elul, is all about. So since the mitzvah of tshuva on Yom HaKippurim, the mitzvah of tshuva on Yom HaKippurim, again, is to question, not just to respond to chatoim, of which I'm already aware, but to question, to probe, to search, so that means that Elul is a time for questioning. That's what Chodesh Elul is, a time for questioning. And certainly as the month passes and as we come closer and closer to the Yomim Navoyim, that search, the questioning has to become more probing, more relentless. And, and that's what I'd like to spend a few minutes together tonight doing the question which I'd like to explore together is one which I I, I confess that that I personally grapple with it's not one not one that I chose for your benefit it's one that I chose for my benefit the question of spirituality and affluence and at what point there arises a clash between the two at what point the two become irreconcilable now a word of clarification I don't mean to imply that only wealth confronts us with an Isoyon. 
That's not at all the case, right? We know that the Mesilas Yashom explains in the opening of his Sefer, the Mesilas Yashom says that all of our life is a struggle. That at every, at every point in life, a person has to struggle. And whatever a person's circumstances, and this is true in terms of economic strata as well, so each of the economic strata poses its, its nisyanas. I don't mean to suggest that wealth poses nisyonos whereas other economic strata don't. But, on the other hand, it is true that our generation is unusual and somewhat unique in facing the nisyon of affluence, of wealth. For the most part, throughout the course of Jewish history, so we as a people have had to confront the Nisayon, the challenge of only, only in, in both senses of the word, poverty and persecution. In the United States, what our grandparents, our great-grandparents referred to as the Golden of Medina, the Golden Country, so we've graduated, we've graduated to the Nisayon, to the challenge of affluence. And thus, it, it behooves us to try to define what challenges affluence poses and presents to a life of Avodah Hashem, to a life of quest for Ruchnias, for spirituality. Our generation isn't unique in being challenged. Every generation is challenged. But our generation, it does face different challenges and unique challenges. One or two other words by way of introduction. Again, the topic in focusing attention on the possible tensions between affluence and, and spirituality, again, that doesn't suggest that spirituality and wealth and being in a certain again, economic stratum, that these are absolutely and necessarily incompatible. That's not the, the, the implication, not at all. The Gemara Vodah tells us that Rabbeinu HaKadosh, Rabbi Yudah HaNasi, who compiled the Shisha Sidrei Mishra, was exceedingly wealthy. He was fabulously wealthy. As a matter of fact, the Gemara Darshan's the Posuk, when Rivka, carrying twins, goes to... To, to the to the base medrash of Shem Ve'eva to understand why she's having such a turbulent pregnancy. So Shem Ve'eva tells her, Vayoma Hashem La Hashem in this context, not referring to Hakadosh Baruch Hu, but referring to the Nevi'im, that Shnei Goyim Bevitnayim. Right. So the simple interpretation is that there are two two nations who are going to emerge from your womb. So the Gemara Navodazara Darshins Al Tikre Goyim Elegeim. That it, that it doesn't mean only two nations, it also means two, again, fabulously wealthy people, and it refers to, respectively, Antoninus and Rabbi. Antoninus from the Roman Empire, and Rabbeinu HaKadosh, both of whom, they were contemporaries, both of whom were fabulously, fabulously wealthy. Now about this same Rabbeinu HaKadosh, the Gemarim Ksubis and Davkuv Dalit tells us that when Rabbeinu HaKadosh was on his deathbed, so the Gemara tells us that Zakaf Eser Etzba Osov Klape Maila, that he stretched out his ten fingers towards heaven. It's revealed before you, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that with my ten fingers I toiled assiduously at Torah and I didn't, didn't benefit even, even the amount of an etzbaktana of a small finger. Chazal again returned to this theme that there's no inherent, automatic, necessary contradiction or incompatibility between the blessing and challenge of wealth and genuine 
Ruchnius, genuine spirituality, in a famous passage in the Gemara and Yuma with which you are all familiar. The Gemara describes Tanara Abandon on the Oshiv Arasha Barn Ladin. Laasid Lava, when all of us stand before the throne of judgment, so there will be people who are poor, there will be people who are rich, there will be people who, who, who were wicked. And each one will seek to absolve himself from responsibility by invoking his personal, ex- his personal circumstances. Im Omer, Oshir Omimlo, in Bezdin Shalmala, so the wealthy person will be asked, Mitmei Malo Asakta Batora. Why weren't you preoccupied with Torah, right? Not just peripherally involved. Last of Bidiv Torah, right? When we say in the morning, Ashikid Shanaz and Mitzvah Lasak Bidivai Torah, it means the mitzvah is not just some peripheral involvement or connection to Torah, but to be preoccupied with Torah. To be preoccupied with Torah. I had to manage a tremendous portfolio. You think it was easy to manage that portfolio? Were you more wealthy than Rabbi Lazar? Who is Rabbi Lazar? Rabbi Lazar ben Chasom. Rabbi Lazar ben Chasom, the following is reported of him. When his father died, he bequeathed to Rabbi Lazar ben Chasom a thousand cities. He was the he, he owned everything in a thousand cities, and corresponding, he had a thousand uh, ships laden with with merchandise in the ocean. Ubechol yom vayom. What was Rabbi Lazar ben Chasom's daily routine? Ubechol yom vayom. No tell no shall kemach. The Gemara says al kseifo. He would take a little leather skin full of flour to sustain himself for the day and then what would he do? And he used to wander seeking teachers of Torah. In fact, the Gemara tells us remarkably once he was wandering within one of his own cities incognito of course and they took him and told him, you know, this city belongs to Velazim Kharsom, and we are demanding that you have to, because of your indebtedness to him, you have to go work for him. So he says to them, Please let me go. All I want to do is study Torah. They said to him, By the life of Abelazim and Kharsom, they're talking to him, right? But they don't know it. By the life of Rabbi Lazar ben Charsim, no, we're not letting you off the hook. So he, he went, he procured funds, and said, here, I'll give you whatever you want, just leave me. And, and his whole life, he didn't attend to it. The Gemara concludes that Rabbi Lazar ben Charsim, that the example of Rabbi Lazar ben Charsim obligates obligates us that we can't invoke wealth and the, the responsibilities of managing it as, an exclu- as, as justification for neglecting our Avodah Hashem. So there's a double message here. On the one hand, Chazal reassure us again that the challenge, the bracha, the challenge Every bracha carries with it challenge. There's no such thing as bracha without challenge. That the bracha, the challenge of wealth, is certainly not insurmountable. But on the other hand, because it's not insurmountable, it won't be accepted as a justification for why we didn't realize our potential in our service of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And finally, before we proceed to a discussion of the topic, not only in the eyes of Chazal is wealth not necessarily opposed 
to a life of Ruchnius, to a life of Avodas Hashem, as glimpsed by the example of Rebbe, of Avalaz ibn Kharsom. But the truth is, there's a remarkable Gemara in Erevin. Remarkable Gemara in Erevin. The Gemara says, Rebbe Mechabed Ashirim. Rebbe used to accord special honor, special respect to wealthy people. He, he didn't hunt for them. He didn't hunt for them. But he accorded them special honor, special respect. Ad-Kadar the Gemara describes that, that he would even, he would even raise the, 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 the bar and he would even accord greater respect according to, to the person's wealth. And the Gemara says, Rabbi Akiva used to do the same, Rabbi Akiva Machaved Ashirim, that when they would meet a, 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 a person who was blessed with wealth and use that blessing to do chesed, use that blessing to, to be a philanthropist, to, to give people jobs, to give stalker, to support most those of Torah. So not only again is, is the blessing and the challenge of wealth not understood as necessarily and automatically incompatible with one's avodas Hashem, one's ruchnis, but on the contrary, it was something which can be used as an instrument in one's avodas Hashem. So the issue then, the issue which we need to examine is not wealth, but rather our attitude towards it. What we seek to do with it, what kind of lifestyle we live, and to what kind of lifestyle we aspire. That's the real question. Our, our attitudes towards wealth are these conducive to Avodah Hashem? Is it conducive to, to a life of spirituality? Are they consistent with Avodah Hashem, with a life of spirituality? But maybe, I don't know, maybe the topic is not so appropriate. I don't know. I keep mentioning wealth. I mean, how many, how many Jews are there? And again, how many, uh, let's say, in the, in the Orthodox community, in, in the Fortune 500? I assume not too many, right? I assume not too many. I don't know if there are any. So, 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 so what are we talking about? So maybe, I don't know, maybe the whole topic is, is, is not really germane. But I think that question itself is an excellent starting point for our discussion because it's symptomatic of a major part of the problem. L- l- let me try to explain what, what, what I have in mind. I think we all distinguish between necessities and luxuries. I think if, 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 if one, uh, if you look at your, your, your checkbook and you look back at expenses, so I think that we can divide things and classify some as this was spent on necessities and this was spent on, on luxuries. When we talk about an affluent lifestyle, so what we mean is a lifestyle which is beset with luxuries and all kinds of forms of indulgence. The question is, well, where do we draw the line between the two? What, what distinguishes what should be defined as a necessity and, and what are luxuries? So l- l- let's, let's get the Rambam's take on, on this issue. The Rambam writes in Perik Alves of Hilchus Deos in presenting his famous golden mean the Rambam writes, That with regard to all dispositions, with regard to all character traits, a person is supposed to chart a middle course. And that middle course is equidistant from both extremes. And it doesn't, it doesn't approach either extreme. 
takes that. The Raman says, let me illustrate that for you. Lo bal noach lichos. A person shouldn't be so volatile, so easily angered. But on the other hand, lo kumeis she'enu margish. He shouldn't be so apathetic that he's that he's rachman al-Islam, like a, like a person who, who's dead and, and doesn't feel. Elibainoni. A person should should go along the middle path. He should chart a middle path. Lo yichos ela aldova shavoi lichos alav. A person should only manifest anger on something which really warrants that kind of moral outrage. And even then, his motivation could be to try to deter this from happening again. Okay, so that's one example of what the Rambam considers the middle path, moderation. Now, let's listen to the next two examples. The Rambam says, lo a person should only desire those things which the body needs to to be healthy and which again, without which a person can't sustain himself and, and, and be healthy and strong. Ki'inyan shenema, as the Posik says, a tzaddik eats l'sova nafsho. Again, just to, to sustain his soul. Second example. V'chein lo yihiye omel ve'esko. A person should work in his business. How much? Lo yihiye omel ve'esko. Elu lahasig dova shetzarech l'chaye sho'a. Ki'inyan shenema tov ma'at l'tzaddik. Just to, to take care of the most minimal expenses, right? Tov ma'at l'tzadik. For a tzadik, what's best is what's minimal. A few days before Rosh Hashanah is a time to ask ourselves a question that perhaps Perhaps we shy away from posing at other times of the year. I think we all enthusiastically embrace the Rambam's doctrine of moderation. But what about the Rambam's definition of moderation? There's no question that the passage in the Rambam, which we just studied together the Rambam's definition by our materialistic inflated standards is very austere what would the Rambam say about our lifestyles about our conception of basic expenses when it comes to vacations when it comes to clothing and the like. It's difficult, no, not, not difficult. Erev Rosh Hashanah is, is not a time to uh, soft-pedal things. It's impossible to, to avoid the conclusion that what we describe as modest and moderate living by the standards of the society in which we live, in reality, by Torah standards, is often elaborate and extreme. One of the most <coughs> pervasive influences and powerful influences is that it's human nature to measure ourselves relative to the society in which we live. But if the society in which one lives has lost its moral compass, that is no longer an accurate way of measuring ourselves and making a determination as to whether or not 
we live modestly and moderately. And, and, and we should make no mistake about it. We pay a steep price for this lack of balance in terms of the lack of modesty and moderation of our lifestyle. First of all, the first cost which we incur, it's undoubtedly a mitzvah to work and earn a living. There's no question about that. The sources in Chazal are abundantly clear, they're overwhelmingly clear. The time that we spend working, the time that we spend in pursuit of livelihood, is not time diverted from Avodah Hashem. On the contrary, it's part of a balanced life of Avodah Hashem. Great is one who benefits literally from the work of his hands. However, to the same degree, as true as it is that it's a mitzvah, it's not diverted time, but on the contrary, it's time well spent to pursue a livelihood, it's equally true that it's not a mitzvah to support an affluent lifestyle. And to force oneself, and this, this happens to some of us, to work long hours in an especially demanding position to pay hefty mortgages to subsidize expensive vacations and the like is a tremendous cost and it's a cost that we in, in our communities are bearing and paying Time spent earning a livelihood is time spent serving HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Time spent in maintaining or trying to establish an affluent lifestyle is time diverted from Avodah Hashem. It's time diverted from Talmud Torah. It's time diverted from Gemilas Chasodim. It's time diverted from Tzorke Tzibur. And time diverted, there's this very simple equation, is life wasted. Because life consists of time. Ultimately, that's what it is. Life is defined in terms of units of times. Years, days, hours, minutes, seconds. Time diverted is, is life wasted. Our definition of modest and moderate lifestyle is badly skewed, clearly heavily influenced by the culture of the Golden of Medina, and very much in need of correction, very much in need of re-establishing balance. I believe it's the father of, of the, the current Gary Rebbe. I think he was known as, as the Leif Simcha. In, in his generation there were three brothers, but I think, I think it was he. During his tenure as the Rebbe of, of, of Ger, he forbade his young Hasidim upon getting married to buy apartments and live in Yerushalayim. He told them, you cannot move to Yerushalayim upon getting married. Why? Because he saw. He saw that the price of apartments in Yerushalayim was beyond their means. He saw that it's okay to take a mortgage on one's house. It's okay. It's fine. Okay. You have to ask a rob, make sure the bank is not majority owned by Jews. There can be questions of rebus, but, but you, you, you ask the rob that question, so, so that we know how to take care of. It's okay to place a mortgage on one's house it's not okay to place a mortgage on one's time. And he demanded that his Hasidim not settle in Yerushalayim. That's where the center of Ger is. The center of Ger is, is in Geula. It is in Yerushalayim. And he said, no, he sent them out to Ashdod, I believe. 
We have to ask ourselves, we have to ask ourselves, unquestionably, Chazal say it's a Gemara and Sukkah, and, and I certainly don't mean to eclipse that Gemara. Chazal say that Adira Noah is Machiva Daito Shaladam. That a person lives in a nice house, it gives him Hachavaz Das. It, it, it's, it, 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 it widens, it expands his horizons. To, to live, again, in nice, clean, somewhat spacious surroundings gives a person hachovaz das. With hachovaz das, a person sits down at night, learns a little bit. A person has time to think, what can I do to help in the community? What chesed needs to be done? Hachovaz das is very important. And, and, and certainly... We need the Hachavaz Das and arguably what gives us Hachavaz Das is going to be more elaborate than what provided Hachavaz Das in earlier generations. Undoubtedly so. But there's a line. There's a line that we cross from what we legitimately need for Hachavaz Das and for what we pursue as part of our affluent lifestyle. The second cost, however, is an even more steep cost. Let's say a person has, by whatever means, by whatever means, let's say a person has the resources to, to fund, to finance the affluent lifestyle. And it doesn't involve mortgaging one's time. It doesn't even involve mortgaging the house. A person has those resources available. There is a second cost, and, and this point is perhaps the most central and, and the most critical in, in our discussion of spirituality and, and affluence. And that is, and, and please, we're both side, let's, let, let's listen carefully and let's, let, let's think. Let's think honestly about it. It's, it's not a, a painless process, by no means. A life of affluence or indulgence, and again, as defined by the Torah, not by Western society in the 21st century, forges and forms a materialistic personality. Why is that such a steep cost? Why is that cost one which is unacceptable for any of us to pay? One finds as a light motif in all svarim, you can go across the gamut. I'll give you two examples one from Sifre Chasidus, one from Sifre Musur, the Mu'ure Nayim. He was from the circle of the Talmidei, Baal Shem Tov. Talks about in the beginning of, of Parshas Lech Lecha. He, he has a phrase, I think my father Zechon Levacha said, the source of the phrase is in a Yerushalmi, in, 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 in Zroim. The phrase, Nahama de Kisufa. Nahama de Kisufa literally means bread. Nahama is bread. Kisufa of shame. And the idea is, says the Mu'ore Nayim, that... In truth, HaKadosh Baruch Hu can allow us to bask in the splendor of His radiance without coming down to Olam Hazer. Yadua ki hanishamos nehenim lemala miziv hashchina rakshehu nahama kisufa. But if we don't earn it, right, a person, a person feels you enjoy when, when, when you work and it's your paycheck to put the food on the table the food tastes better than if it's given to you as long as the neshama stays in upper worlds in the upper realms doesn't come down into Olam Haza doesn't by, by living a life of Kedusha and Tahara, of dedication, devotion to Torah and mitzvot, as long as the person doesn't do that to whatever HaKadosh Baruch who gives our neshamis in the upper world, 
says the Mu'ayinayim, it's Naham Kisufa. It's bread of shame. We didn't earn it. It's like your whole life being an Adam of Kest. The person who's eating it, it it's, it's not his. For this reason, HaKadosh Baruch Hu sends our Neshamas down to this world so that so that by our choosing to do good, to study Torah, to be Mekayim Mitzvah, to live a life of Kedusha, Vitara, of holiness and purity, then HaKadosh Baruch Hu can give us, and then HaKadosh Baruch Hu can say, you can truly enjoy it, because it's no longer a Nahamadi Kisufa. It's no longer a bread of shame. The same idea, switching genre, going back in, in time to, to the Mesilas Yishorim, to, 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 to the genre of Sifrei Musr, Mesilas Yishorim says, what Chazal have taught us, why was man created? To take pleasure, to take delight in our relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And, and to, to enjoy again the splendor of His Shechina. This is the, the real, ultimate delight in life. And this is the greatest enjoyment that a person can have. And when that happens, that doesn't play itself out in this world, but in the world to come. What's the point? The point is, as the Mesir of Tisharim proceeds to quote, it's a mission in Perkei Avos. We all know it from Perek. The Mishnah says that Olam Hazed Dome Leprozdor Olam Haba. That this world is an antechamber. It's a corridor leading to Olam Haba. Haskein Atzmacha Beprozdor the Traklin. The Tana tells each and every one of us, prepare yourselves in this world, why? This isn't the ultimate. This isn't the ultimate. Haskein atzmocha v'pozdor kedei so that you'll gain admittance to the, to the banquet hall. You know, when a person undergoes training, let's say basic training in the military, so what's the, what's the, 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 the the underlying philosophy, the underlying philosophy is to try to anticipate and then simulate the type of situations with which a person may be confronted. So that they try to simulate all kinds of scenarios which the soldier may encounter in, in, in a bat- on, on the battlefront. The training, the preparation for astronauts so again, they try to, to simulate the effect of being in outer space. They try to simulate the potential claustrophobia which one can experience by spending days again in such a small, restricted area with several other people. Because the point is that if you're training someone for a mission, so you have to try to form and forge the personality that they'll be ready to deal with that type of situation. If you're going to send people out to do battle in, in the deserts of Iraq, so then they have to be subjected during the course of training to those types of conditions so they'll be able to deal with it. And clearly any other philosophy in terms of preparation is folly. That's the only, only cogent and only correct philosophy of preparation. So if Chazal tell us that Ha'olam Hazed Dome Leprozdor Bifnei Ha'olam Haba, that we live here, we all, we all ask, we all beseech HaKadosh Baruch Hu, right? Chaim Tovim Varukim. How long is Chaim Tovim Varukim? I don't know, I think nowadays we would say 90 years. 
Maybe again with, with Baruch Hashem people living longer and longer, so maybe we're, we're even more hopeful. But, but Olam Haba is eternal. Olam Haba is eternal. So as long as we live in Olam Hazer, the point is that when the Ribbon Shalom says that, that, that the time is up, that our personality, that we should have formed and forged the personality that we're ready for that transition. If, if I live my whole life in an indulgent way, if I allow the bent of my personality to be materialistic, so what kind of preparation is that? Is that responding to the call of the Tana of Haskin Atzmacha Viprozdor now, make no mistake, Yahadus is centered on Olam Hazza in the following sense. And, and, and those of you who, who are familiar with, with the Rav's essay, Isha Halacha, will hear echoes of, of, of this now. Yahadus is focused on Olam Hazza in terms of Hayom La'asosam that in this world is the world of attainment. This world is the world of achievement. And in that sense, this world is one's primary existence. Because in this world, as we're told, the Vilna Gon crying on his deathbed, the Talmudim asked him, why are you crying? Why are you crying? And the Vilna Gon says, because this world is such a wonderful place. For a few kopecks, it was Cholomoid Sukkot, for a few kopecks you go and you buy a lulav and an esrog and you have the incomparable schuth, the incomparable privilege of fulfilling a mitzvah in Olam Haba for all the money in the world you can't fulfill a mitzvah Hayom La'asosam so make no mistake we both sides Yahadus, the Torah is oriented on Olam Haza as the world of the place for attainment of achievement, for opportunity but in terms of where one's permanent residences in terms of what type of personality we have to try to form and forge so that's what all the Svarim tell us that's the metaphor of Sukkah right? the Gemara says in Sukkah on Dav Beis that the mitzvah of Sukkah is say me diras keva right? go out of your what you perceive as your permanent abode your home with its with its sturdy walls and its impenetrable roof, say me dearest Kev, have a shave with dearest and go dwell in the booths, in the sukkah, and as all the Swam explain, all the Swam explain, it's a metaphor that a person is supposed to recognize, yeah, this is the world of attainment and achievement, but it's only a dearasarai. It's only a temporary abode. It's only a temporary abode. Right? We're all familiar with the story of the Chafetz Chaim. Someone came and saw he had no furnishings. All he had was uh, benches in his home. He asked the Chavetz Chaim, where's your furniture? So the Chavetz Chaim said, I'm passing through. In a train station, you have benches. No, make, make no mistake. In, in my living room, you'll come visit, you'll see I have a sofa. I'll invite you to sit down, make yourself comfortable on the sofa. I'm not saying that it's within our reach, within our grasp to achieve this to, to, the sofa only sits three, so don't all come at the same time. The, the, I'm not saying that it's within our grasp to achieve this, to attain this on the level of the Chafetz Chaim, to the degree of the Chafetz Chaim. But, but we cheat ourselves. We indulge ourselves. We cheat ourselves. The more we indulge ourselves, Rabbi the more truthfully we cheat ourselves. Because that's not what the type of existence of Olam Haba is. Olam Haba is, is, again, that's what HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted. HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, listen to my mitzvot. What I want to do, what I want to do is I want to bestow Olam Haba on you. Some of the Svarim say, as a matter of fact, how do we know logically that there has to be an Olam Haba? So they say, look at this world, look at all the suffering, look at all the pain. And, and unfortunately, ours is a generation when it's all over the front pages, Rahman al-Islam, this can't be the ultimate. This isn't the one's ultimate address. One's ultimate address is in Olam Haba. 
So one has to be, the military training has to be geared to what the battlefront situation is going to be. So our training has to be geared to what our permanent abode will be, where our permanent residence will be. And, and, and the, the affluence and indulgence, we do ourselves a disservice. Now, I'd like to just, just add one or two, I'm sorry, it's a little bit late, one or two other quick comments and then maybe some other time where we'll discuss some other elements and applications. The cost we pay is not only one which is charged to our own bill, but it's, it's one which affects our children as well. You know, every choice that we make in life in terms of establishing our homes and what kind of household we establish has repercussions for our children as well. When Chazal say, Chazal, the Postic says, Train a child when he's young because those habits will stay with him for a lifetime. The habits formed in youth are the strongest, most firmly entrenched habits. So if, if we train our children, we train our children again to be happy, to be content, again, in terms of materialistically, with muat, with a little bit, and we imbue them with a passion for Torah, a passion for mitzvahs, so gan ki yaskin lo yosumimena, we've done our best, it doesn't eclipse the child's free will. Absolutely not. But we've done our best at parents to put the child on, on the right path. But the power of, of, of habit is true even if the habit is not the best habit. I've met, I've met, I've met people who just, Chazal have an expression, Masiach Lefituma. Masiach Lefituma means that, that the person is just conversing casually and, and doesn't even realize that, that one is interested in, in this particular topic and, and will just say offhanded, well, you know, just to make a living nowadays, you have to earn $200,000 a year. Because otherwise, you just can't cover basic expenses. So where do, where do our children get that idea from? They get that idea from us. They get that idea from us. If, if there's a certain level, again, a certain lifestyle that, that we, we define as modest and moderate and, and, and therefore our, our children can't imagine living below that line. Because living below that line, the way we've trained them, seems to be like living below the poverty line. Gam ki yazkin lo so is that if we want the best for our children are we doing right by them are we doing right by them in setting them and steering them on, on such a path and, and one final comment and there are many other elements of this topic that we haven't touched upon yet another fallout from the lack of moderation and the lack of modesty that we sometimes display in our lifestyle. You know, we, when we have occasion, Baruch Hashem, to make a simcha, so again, even if one's pockets are deep enough, so we often make lavish, expensive weddings. The result is that other members of the community who don't have the resources for that feel obligated either out of a sense of shame or a sense of feeling an obligation to reciprocate everyone who invited them so they also feel this obligation to make it 400, 500 I don't know how many hundred people simcha and again not just anywhere but it has to match what everyone else is doing because otherwise I'm shortchanging my child because if everyone else gives this to their daughter when they marry off their daughter then I'm shortchanging 
my child, and people go into debt. People go into people go into debt to finance the simcha and hanistaros. Yeah, the nistaros. Did we tell them to do it? No, we didn't tell them to do it. But remember, remember, Abosa, Let's remember what Rabbi Shlomo Feinstein said. We didn't have to tell them to do it, and we don't even have to have been privy to that deliberation. But to the extent that the mores of the society influenced them, and we created that, so then then we are responsible for that. The Gemara Ksubis tells us that where did the minute come that when a person that a person is buried in the simplest of shrouds is because it used to be that, that the richer people were, were, were buried in, in fancier tachrichim and it placed an impossible burden on the poor until Rabbi Gamliel left as a tzavah that he should, he should be buried again in, in simple simple tachrichim of pishtan and then that became the norm so that's also something we have a responsibility for we also have a responsibility again to see what is the cost for ourselves of our lifestyle what's the cost which we impose upon our children and what's the cost that we impose upon others Good uh, year,